Welcome to A Thousand Tiny Steps. I'm Barb Higgins, and in this podcast, I'll share personal stories of great joy and tragedy and the steps that brought me there. I have become adept at tracing them backward to find the origin of an event, good or bad, that has affected my life. I have gone from being on top of the world with Division I All-American success to being unable to get out of bed with the grief of losing a child and everything in between. I am painfully honest, which can make people uncomfortable, but discomfort brings growth and oftentimes tragedy brings joy. So tie, buckle, slip on, release up your shoes and join me as we begin our thousand tiny steps. Hey everybody, Barb Higgins here beginning episode 49 of a thousand tiny steps. So in preparing for this episode, I actually spent a lot of time thinking about the last two episodes and also pondering a blog post that I wrote that by the time this is recorded will have been on my website for a couple of weeks. And I wrote all about our bodies and our soul houses and how we're two entities, a person and a soul house. And so if you've read it, then you know what I'm talking about. And I talked a lot about family in a prior podcast that sometimes Family isn't blood at all. And when you think of the many ways we define family, foster families, adoptive families, biological families, multi-generational families, a group of people with a common interest families, commune families, you know, there are just so many ways. A convent of nuns, they're a family, you know, monks in a monastery family, you know, workers on a farm that sleep together in a bunkhouse family. You become family with the people that you're around a lot. And it got me thinking about the period of time that this season really talks about. 1989, 2005, that's actually a 16-year period, a long time of my life where, look at it now as this little teeny piece of it. But in those 16 years, I moved to Concord for a year and ended up never leaving. I went through teaching at an alternative high school and then working at an elementary school in Concord. And I think right around 2005 was shortly after Molly's birth that I moved to the high school. So I hadn't gotten there yet. But, you know, I went through a lot of changes. And in that process, as I look back on coming up with an idea for this episode, I'm just going to talk about some people that were important to me during this time. People that I met or were involved in my life or I was involved in their life that stood out significantly at that time for a variety of reasons. And I've often said that my life is a circular motion. And that isn't necessarily a bad thing. As an educator, I know that when you're teaching concepts like math concepts, you teach certain things to mastery because you need to master one skill to do the next. But sometimes you'll go through a skill and then circle back to it later. So it's like an upward spiral. If you're looking at me, I'm making like an upward spiral with my arm. And sometimes I look at my life that way. I just come back to the same thing again and again. I suppose I'll come back to it until I master whatever the task is. So when I moved back and I was just, you know, working at Second Start and just starting out and not having a big core group of friends, the people I connected with most, and I'm talking early on now, like in the, you know, 89, 90, 91, before I married Eric, that chunk of time where I was just living in Concord, People that I hung around with the most were people at the YMCA, people that I worked out with. So I found some running buddies. I ran with the running club once a week. So I started doing that sort of thing. So I had social time when I was running, but these weren't people necessarily that, you know, other than Jim Graham, who, you know, has been a friend of mine forever now, I didn't develop a lot of strong friendships in the running group or the workout people at the Y. Women didn't lift weights like I did back then. So I would go to the weight room at the Y, which used to be down in the basement. And it was free weights. There was a bench and a squat rack and all of the things that actual weightlifters used, metal plates though. And sometimes I would go down there and it could be a little uncomfortable because there were never, ever seldom other women down there. So that was tricky sometimes. The other place that I found friends in those early, early years back in Concord was 
I acted. So I was in the Victorian Society of New Hampshire and a woman named Linda Ashford organized that. Karen Braz, who was Molly's director in, in the last play of her life and who was the oldest sister of Sally, one of my best childhood friends, she was involved in that. And we were in some plays together and sang Christmas carols in our Victorian gowns. I created social life for myself based on the activities that kept me busy and feeling focused and connected and healthy. I also was heavy into AA at that time. And so I had a big circle of AA friends. Now, typically social time with them would be going to a meeting and being a speaker at a meeting or going with a group of people to a different meeting to hear different stories and have a different experience. It wasn't social like let's go to the beach or let's go hike. I didn't really have those kinds of times with people. It was interesting. I did also at that time spend a significant amount of time visiting my biological father, Tom. And we did some easier hikes. He was he was in his late 70s then, I would say, mid to late 70s. And so young, I look at that as young now, but at the time I didn't. And so we hike and I have some pictures of us in Franconia Notch and places like that. What I tended to do, and this is what I do now, I've done it this whole first year of Jack's life, is I find a cause or something to jump into that keeps me swallowed up and busy. And I have done this. My most recent one before Jack would have been the charter school with Stephanie and her mom. I went from not working at all to feeling like maybe I could be a part-time PE teacher to getting talked into managing this school for a few months, hours and hours and hours away from my family. My whole entire life at home just stopped. That's sort of what I do. When I came back to Concord, I talked about how I just cut off my Boston life and jumped into my New Hampshire life. And my first friend, and here we go with boundaries again, was actually a student of mine. Her name was Meg. I'll call her Meg for this in case, you know, privacy issues and such. But Meg was someone I ended up spending like 30 hours a week with. Intelligent, smart, nine years younger than me at our ages now. That's nothing. We're like the same age. But at the time when she was 18 and I was 27, that was a bit of a, an age difference or 18 and 26. And I met her through Second Start and she was a student there and we just clicked. And so I began to spend time with her. She was such a brave, brave fighter and struggler and experiencer of mental illness. And she had some biological, you know, really neurologically based mental illnesses that people don't understand. And so my task, my self-given self task was to try to help her get a GED, you know, an equivalency so she could have a high school diploma. So smart, so, so smart. Sometimes we measure intellect with pieces of paper when really just sit and have a conversation with someone. For those first two or three years that I was here in Concord, I buried myself in time with, with Megan. 30, 40 hours a week. And we had a blast. We went skiing. We went prom dress shopping. Neither of us needed a prom dress, but they're fun to try on. And sometimes when she was really struggling, I would just go and sit with her and we would, and we would just visit and hang out and talk about crazy things because why not? One of my favorite, favorite memories with Meg was she was actually spending some time in a mental health facility. And so she had an afternoon off and I went to get her and we drove around. We're in friendlies and we're acting silly, and, but in a fun way. And we noticed that the people next to us are giving us an eye. So I look at them and I'm like, She's on a three-hour pass. And they giggled, you know, thinking we were joking around. <laughs> and it wasn't, it wasn't a lie at all. And this was what was a beautiful thing about Meg is that she could look at her life. She could look at her situation. She could look at everything that sucked in it and find ways to laugh about it and ways to just feel okay. I talk about my ability to step out, step outside of myself and look at myself as if I'm someone else, as if me, Barb, is looking at someone else. And I've had people ask me, is that like a multi-personality disorder? And I would I wouldn't say for me it was because I wasn't becoming someone else when I stepped out. I was always me and aware of me. It was just that I was able to get out of my soul house here, my body, and look at it in a different way. And Megan was able to do that. She could analyze herself from across the room in such beautiful ways. 
But she also sometimes, you know, had auditory hallucinations and would hear things. This would terrify her sometimes, but, you know, she could joke about that as well. We were in a restaurant once and somebody, you know, the major D came up and looked at us and said, two? And her reply was, on a good day. You know, meaning she was two people on a good day and she could be 20 people on a bad day. I think that she helped me as much as I helped her. That's one of those friendships where you look at why people come into your life. I was able to maintain a wonderful friendship with Meg. We lived across the street from one another when I lived up in the tower during my, my marriage to Eric. We stayed incredibly connected. She was right across the street. Even in the process of my divorcing Eric and then the process of meeting Kenny and getting married to Kenny. Meg was at my wedding, so was her dad. I became good friends with him. We actually <laughs> dated for a bit, but <laughs> that was my dating phase. I just look at her family. What a wonderful family. I'm very lucky. After I had Gracie, Megan and I sort of parted ways. And it's not that we decided to not be friends anymore, but she met somebody and moved out of town. So we're not nearby anymore or neighbors you know, when her life is going well and we're both involved and busy. And so life goes on and these things happen. I, you know, so I had my Gracie and then had Molly. And, but in that time, those first three years of me being here, I would say I worked 40 hours a week and spent 30 more hours with Megan. And that was my life. I ran, I did my plays and activities. I worked out and I hung out with Megan and that was what I did. And I can oftentimes, I remember my mother sometimes worrying about this. Now, in the meantime, now that I develop a relationship with Chaz, who's my next person I'll talk about, and then that ends, and then Jim, and then that ends, and then I marry Eric. And so I still manage to create time for relationships like that. But I just look back at my jumping into that situation with Megan, that friendship, and really allowing myself to be swallowed up. Chaz is significant because, you know, I met him on a hike. He was just the hut master of a hut that we all stayed overnight in, me and a bunch of kids. And we we clicked with conversation and, you know, there was no social media. It wasn't like, let's friend each other on Facebook or follow each other on Instagram or give me your Snapchat name. It wasn't like that. You wrote your phone number down and you wrote your address down and it was snail mail and phone calls. And the phone was attached to a wall somewhere. Our getting together was, was a bit more, you had to really focus on it. And what's significant about that relationship is Chaz really reconnected me to my love of the mountains and hiking and all of that, all the outdoor stuff. And he was at a phase in his life where that's what he did. He, you know, spent a summer in Yellowstone and he went to Antarctica more than once and lived like six months in Antarctica working on things down there. Totally devoted to planet Earth. And, you know, I wonder sometimes he's a NICU nurse at Dartmouth Hitchcock. I'm blown away by that. When I showed up with my soon to be dead child and he was her nurse and he was the one that unplugged her, you know, I dated him two and a half years. He was a piece of my life that I thought maybe would be a forever piece. And the universe created a series of events that brought us back in the death of my daughter and Chaz unplugged Molly. Chaz is a unique human being and he's very, very focused. He has two kids, I think. You know, you can't be a NICU nurse and not be focused on wanting to help. I think his whole life is a life of service. And when I think sometimes as to why we're really here as human beings, why are we here? Religion or not, God or not, when you're living your life in an attitude of gratitude, so to speak, and you're helping others, everything just gets better. I've mentioned a lot that I'm in this place of anger and I have been just so angry. You know, Jack's birth, I've often said, is that babies are truth producers. They reveal the truth. And I have had so much anger in, in my heart in the last year. And I feel like I have to experience it to release it. And I feel like it's getting better and I'm learning from it and things are coming up. And I think, well, I'm really still angry about that. So I need to do some forgiveness work. And when I look at Chaz, I would look at him as somebody that I would put on my spiritual team. Karen Kenny helps us in our spiritual mentoring about creating a team of people here and on the other side that we can call on in our minds and our hearts for support. And I would look at Chaz as one of those people. Another significant person in my life at that time is Jack. <laughs> Not my Jack, 
Jack Frazier. So Jack and I grew up on Essex Street and Concord back then was a, was a city of parks and neighborhoods. And you're really identified by the park that you could walk to and the elementary school you could walk to. And it's not that way anymore. And it does make me sad. Concord likes to pride itself on being a community of neighborhoods, but unless you have a vehicle, there isn't a lot anyone can do in their neighborhood unless they're lucky, lucky enough to live near whatever it is. So Jack and I grew up together, very, very different. He was big into hockey. He was friends with my brother. He is two years older than me. So our lives were parallel, but he was a handful of neighborhood kids that when I got good at running, took a real interest in it. And it was very validating to me. So when I came back, Jack was just starting. There was the Concord Track Club and it was a woman named Karen started it. And it was just boys. It was, it was all boys. And so Jack started one that was all girls. And I thought that was so funny. And I remember we had one of the first meetings at Walker School and we called, we decided to name it Concord Flyers. I thought it was still going on and come to find out he hasn't done it for a couple of years. So Jack, if you're listening, I think that maybe it's time to start it up again in some manner. Those were just wonderful times. And so he started this track club and I was supportive as much as I could be. We went to races together. I was running a bit then. My running was much more recreational, but I still loved it. And he really became a regular part of my professional life in terms of coaching. I remember during that time, there was no cross-country program at Runlet Middle School. And my mother did it for one year. She volunteer coached for a year and she got this group of kids and she was awesome. Think back now to how amazing it was when school districts could be a bit more relaxed like that. And then I took it over and I did it. It was just considered intramural. And I did it along with the high school team for like two years. You know, we got good enough to be like fourth in the state meet. And our then athletic director, Bill Whitmore, took notice and suddenly there was a position created and Jack was the coach. And he coached at Runlet probably 15, 15 years anyway, a long, long time. Did a wonderful job. And we built up a huge program there, always top finishing, top finishing, top finishing at the state meet. And, you know, he's a high school friend. He's been there. He was, came to visit at the birth of both of my kids. He showed up on my wedding day, came to the house and we did our little shot of rumplements, <laughs> which is a White's Park tradition. And, you know, he, he just has been there for me through all of it. When I lost my job, he was at my house all the time. You know, so many people just deserted me then. I talk about the deafening silence of, you know, how, how deafening the silence is when you think you have a community of people and they disappear. It is interesting to note when I made my list of significant people between 1989 and 2005, very few of them are people that I work with. And I don't know <laughs> that's significant in some way. And I would probably need some help peeling back the layers of that, all of my really close relationships were either the young people I was working with or people outside my life that were involved in my activities. And the people I knew at work were people I knew at work. And I just find that to be interesting. Not that I wasn't close to them or didn't maintain contact, but I always sort of felt like I was on the outside looking in. There'd be little get togethers with teachers when I taught at Walker and they would talk about, they went out for drinks and I was never invited to those. I wouldn't have been turned away had I showed up, but you know, it's one of those things sometimes I often felt like I just didn't fit that jive and that that's me and that's just fine. Also during that time, in terms of my adult friends was Jim. And I mentioned before, he was just on a podcast. He's another one that it's interesting. I go to the city and I spend eight years living in Boston and I come home and my first two relationships are with people that are utterly committed to being outside as much as possible and to maintaining outside and keeping nature healthy and beautiful and well and incorporating being outside and being active in their lives. I think that's yeah, a bit interesting. I love it. A good friend of mine that probably would parallel sobriety at that time was Polly. And I've talked about her and we've reconnected again. Polly and I, like a lot of really, really good friends, weave in and out. But when I first came back to Concord, she was somebody, she was somebody my age, roughly. And we hung out a lot. We lifted weights and we went for drives and we talked and we analyzed. We went to the beach and we had overnights and we just spent a ton of really, truly social time together. You know, she moved away and went to college and then 
she got very heavily involved with a woman named Pam and they were married for a long time. And they lived actually in and around, they lived in Amesbury for a while, which I love that. I love that Amesbury connection. Polly used to bake pies for flatbread pizza. Her pies are delicious, by the way. We've woven in and out of each other's lives. Her mother has been very, very sick and passed away a year ago. And death is really hard for me now. And I have not been able to be a good friend to Polly in that regard in a way that I could have been prior to Molly. And that's been hard, hard on her, hard on me. But the beauty of it is we will never not be friends. We've had long separations where we were angry with one another or didn't speak with one another. And we always come back together in times of need. One of our reuniting times was when a woman named Colleen passed away in 2011 and a group of women got together were Colleen's girls and we help each other. And Polly just had some surgery and Colleen's girls rallied around Polly. It's interesting. Polly is somebody that was a big person in my life at that time. And I find that significant sometimes because she's still a big person in my life. The next bunch of people are people that I coached. And this is where in my life boundaries, and this happens with trauma victims a lot and people with addiction issues, boundaries become so tricky. And I always, always dove hundred percent into my coaching. It's why I could have 65 girls on a cross-country team. It's why when I coached at Bo, I had 46 girls, 46 girls. There were only 250 girls in that school, maybe 300, and 46 of them were running cross-country. But in our day and age now, 2022, that's all poo-pooed upon. You shouldn't overreach out and overextend because that's not, you know, you're crossing boundaries. And, you know, I don't know, this is something I'll balance around. I just need to start my own Barb Fit, Barb's Track Club, right? And then I can boundary away, <laughs> however I see fit. In my first years here, I had some very significant people in my life that were runners of mine. And the first I have to start with is Chris Wentworth, Kristen. So Chris was on my very first Concord High team. And that's when Bo still came to Concord High School. They didn't have a high school yet. My very first year coaching at Concord High School, she was a sophomore because Bo had ninth grade. They had a ninth grade at Bo Memorial School. And then 10th grade, the Bo students came to Concord High. She was one of my best runners. I had a little team we just clicked on a lot of levels. You know, when I look back on it, she was somebody that needed reassurance and support. And as was I, I loved how hard she worked. We could talk about a lot of things. Now keep in mind, she was 15 and I was 27. So that's like a 12 year difference, which is still a significant difference, I understand. But we just really clicked. And, and I did a lot of cross country team dinners and things. And I would always, you know, do it at a girl, one of the runner's houses, never my house, because I was teeny apart. And so I got to meet the parents and the families of all these girls. And Chris and I really became important in one another's lives. My favorite Chris memory, well, I have a million. So I have two that I'll share. One is I was going through a really, really rough time. I was spreading myself thin. I was working at Hermanos. I was trying to be in a play. I was coaching and training, teaching, and I didn't have a day off for like 17 straight days. And then I got let go from Hermanos and it was heartbreaking. And I was accused of things, oh, stealing tips, like I'm not putting tips in the tip jar inappropriately. And you know, I am many things, but I'm not a thief. I'm not comfortable around it. I'd be too afraid to get caught to steal anything. Like, you know, and, and how do you enjoy something that isn't yours? I don't like things being stolen from me. So that was really emotional and I really fell apart. And I was house sitting for Harriet. I was just a mess. And I came home to my apartment where I was living and there was this big pan of like Rice Krispie treats and all this yummy stuff and a letter and just this goodie bag of love. And it was anonymous. It was typed. So there was no handwriting and, and I had no idea. And and I asked her, I just had ideas of who it might've been. And she was the person I thought, and she said, no, no, it wasn't me. And years later, she admitted, yes, that she had done that. That's who she was. She just was kind enough to do that for me. My other memory is we did a hot traverse. We got dropped off at Tuckerman's Ravine and we climbed up Mount Washington that way. We went up Tuckerman's in a pouring rain and went over the presidentials heading toward Franconia Notch. And so we did 
Lakes of the Clouds Hut and then Mispa Hut and then Crawford Notch. And we slept overnight at Crawford's. And then the next day we woke up and her parents were nice. They brought my car around and parked it there at Zealand. All of our clothes, we didn't have to carry all that stuff with us. And we showered and, you know, changed clothes and had a big dinner and all and went to sleep and woke up and had a giant breakfast at a restaurant. And then we hiked from Zealand through Twin Mountain and all of that to Mount Lafayette. So we got Zealand Hut, then we got Galehead Hut, and then we got the one that's on Lafayette. It's Greenleaf. And then we came down. So the only thing we didn't do was hike up to Lonesome Lake Hut on Cannon Mountain. But it was nighttime almost by the time we got there. And then we hitched a ride back to our car. <laughs> so that was fall right before her senior year. And we did that together. We each created each other a book. It's wonderful. I made a book. We decided we would each make a book of memories about the trip. The things that stuck with us was almost identical. We could have just made one book and shared it. That's how connected we were. And she was just wonderful. Through her journey as an adult and through mine as continuing to be an adult, she has lived all over the United States. She has worked at colleges and done a million different things. She did a bodybuilding competition. She has wonderful pets. She has worked hard in sobriety. Kristen is a supporter of anyone that needs love and support. She is the least judgmental, most kind person I know. When Molly died, she came right down. She was here the whole, the whole weekend. She came and saw Molly's show. And when I'm struggling, she's the first to reach out. So Chris, this is for you and I love you. And I met her, you know, my very first fall coaching at Concord High School. My very first team was Chris, Chris Wentworth. So as I moved along with coaching, the next person I would really have to talk to in terms of cross country would be Rachel, Rachel Wildman. So Rachel is amazing. And so she was another one. We just clicked on issues that we had that were bothering us. We had similar senses of humor. She was going through a lot of, you know, family strife in her high school years. And I actually met her through indoor track. She was a really, really good runner and she played soccer. And then she came to cross country from soccer, I believe her senior year. And she was amazing. I remember watching her come down, you know, she ran one year and she came running down and she was like, you know, seventh in the state meet, like really, really just a top runner right away. Rachel and I were three seasons that year. So it's indoor and outdoor track. And then when she did cross country, now three seasons. I was after school with Rachel from September to June. And, you know, I learned, I learned as much from her as, as she learned from me. Actually, I probably learned more. And she talked about smart, really, really, really gifted and smart. She became a very successful track and field and distance runner at Tufts University in Boston. She was phenomenal and had a wonderful time there. And again, we communicated all the time. When she was home for Christmas, she'd come. When we were struggling, when we were having bad days, we would say that we needed our floaties, that it was a day that we needed to wear our swimmies, you know, because, because we were having trouble staying above water. She's somebody that understood my analogy of the undertoed, you know, it, oh, I have a nervous tummy. We just connected on so many levels around, just around how to be. And I know for her, it was validating that an adult could relate to her feelings in such a way. And I think for me, it was validating that I could share that, yes, I feel the same way. And it also made me feel not alone. It made me feel necessary as a coach. And we had wonderful times together. And a lot of our times together were big group events with track teams and cross-country teams. You know, it's not like we hung out and went to the movies and things like this. But when you coach and run three seasons, you see somebody all the time. Rachel then went on to Louisiana and went to Tulane and got a PhD and she was doing all sorts of scientific things, public health and just research, all of these things. And then with the Hurricane Katrina came and, you know, they lost everything. They moved to New York and they never went back. And now she's an Episcopal minister, which I love. Her dad is a minister. He's a wonderful, wonderful human being, Tim. During the pandemic, Tim has played music on his porch. We had these neighborhood concerts. For a while, he played taps every night at seven o'clock. It was phenomenal. And that pandemic drew a neighborhood together because of Rachel's dad. Rachel is another one. We have never, ever, ever lost contact. She was in Pennsylvania for a while, I think Pittsburgh. 
you know, far away. She has lived all over the place. And she and I do not have regular contact, but if we sat in a room right now, we could talk for hours about everything. Her kids have come to track camp. They're beautiful. Oh my God, I love her kids. They crack me up. I can't tell you. And so she's another one. I met her in the 90s. I met her early, early on before I even turned 30. Oh, a little flashback to, to Kristen. My wedding dress to Eric was a dress that was hers. It didn't fit her anymore. So she gave it to me from a store called Express. <laughs> so Kristen, I still have that dress. It hangs in my attic. So Rachel was another one that it wasn't just the running. It was a million other things around the running. Probably next would come Ember Smith, who's now Ember Stokes. And she's from a family of 11 children. And all of them, girls and boys alike, were runners. And I met that family actually through her older brother, Roscoe, and then her older sister, Tanya. And they were the first two Smiths I knew. And then Claudia, of course, their mom. When there were Smiths around, they were all sizes and shapes, all manner of cleanliness or covered with dirt, all manner of running around or, or sitting still. It was like organized chaos with that family. And they're a very, very spiritual family. They're very devoted Mormons. And so I learned so much about family values from Ember from that perspective, a lot of good family values in that religion. And so Ember just clicked with me initially. I mean, right away when we met when she was in middle school, she helped me sort through clothes and she used to make fun of my ugly clothes. We were sorting clothes to give things away to the Salvation Army. And she held up a dress and she's like, nobody's gonna want this, throw this away. And I'm like, well, that's when we donate. It was just funny. She just had no, she was just very, very honest. And I remember she and my first husband, Eric, really clicked. They would talk on the phone sometimes for an hour. And sometimes I get weirded out about it a little bit, but it was just, it was just a youngster looking for a, a safe adult connection with. And Ember, Ember was my sidekick all through her high school years. And maybe that's unfair for a student, but I did a lot for her family. Kenny and I one year provided Christmas presents for that family. Love Santa, love Santa, love Santa. And we just wanted, you know, things to go well for them. Claudia, her mother, we also clicked as well. Claudia's unique. I love you, Claudia, if you're listening. Very, very, very intricate mind and thinks about a lot of things at a quick rate of speed. So following Claudia's conversations can be challenging sometimes. But if you just sort of sit back and listen, it always makes sense when it's all said and done. And she, after Molly's death, every Wednesday on her morning walk would leave me, some, leave me a book or a newspaper article or little trinkets, things for me to look at to let her know that she loved me and to distract me a little bit. And now that she lives in Utah, she emails me every Wednesday. So these are people I met, you know, really when I just first came back here and was just reestablishing myself as a Concord, New Hampshire person. Gracie's first name is Ember, after Ember, this particular Ember. Her whole senior year was the year that Gracie was born. So big pregnant Barb and then new baby. And I remember I had to go teach a lesson at Walker School and she went with me and held and watched Gracie while I did my little, you know, lesson on electricity with my science students. It was awesome. Or maybe she had to do the lesson. Yes. And I had to watch. Anyway, she was just with me a lot and has provided nonstop support. I went to her wedding and I went to the beautiful Mormon temple that's in Belmont, Massachusetts. This is another group of people and family that I met in those early, early years that I was here. This brings us now to the turn of the century a little bit. And I was coaching three seasons now, cross-country, indoor, and outdoor track. So it's funny, people have babies and they stop everything, and, which I think people need to do what they need to do. But I took my maternity leave from teaching, but I didn't take eight weeks off from coaching with either child. I just nursed my babies in press boxes. I took my babies to track meets. Kenny would follow the bus with the baby and all the gear and you know, there we were so I could nurse and do whatever I needed to do. I never ever stopped the coaching. I actually should go through all of my, all of my books and make t-shirts for girls that ran 12 seasons, 12 seasons with Barb. I think Kathleen Jones is one of them. Cross country, indoor and outdoor track for four years. That's 12 seasons. That's essentially spending every afternoon of your life after school with me. 
and I had tremendous growth and gifts in those, in those years. And a lot of those years continue after the years I'm talking about now. You know, it was sort of one of those things. I'm going for 12 seasons with Barb. I think Carrie, Carrie, I think you must be a 12 seasons with Barb. Yeah, cross country, indoor and outdoor track, four seasons. Yeah. And Chrissy Fulton would be 11 because she did softball her freshman year, I believe, not spring track. Yeah, I had a bunch. Cross country, indoor and outdoor track, that 12 seasons with Barb phenomenon. So during those times, I've mentioned some names right now. And a lot of these runners, our connections were really running based and really, really like cross country and team building. And everything we did together was, was really based around the team. It wasn't so much social things. I would do things like had to have campfires in the yard in the winter for indoor track. We'd have a team party in my yard outside in the middle of winter. We'd, Kenny would snowblow out an area and we'd build a fire and roast weenies and you know play frisbee in the snow and go sledding and those kinds of things. And I had spring track cookouts in the yard where both the boys and girls teams would come. Typically cross country team dinners were at a variety of people's houses, but these were events that were consistent and regular and just provided a way for everyone to meet everyone. But I know that when I got married, that particular team, so I think back to Donna Blanchard and Lisa Potter, I think back to Rachel Umberger and Chrissy Fulton and Erica Nason and Meredith Ford and Ember Smith, of course, Molly Ryder, Loie Kinney. You know, there was this big, big group of girls that were just committed and dedicated and so excited to us getting married. They sang at our wedding. I talked about that. These are people that I met in those early years. And these runners, while I maintain contact with some of them, a lot of them I just only see on social media. But I will say when something comes up, when there's a big thing, some of these girls still reach out. Ember just worked a water stop with her three daughters, July 16th at the Bill Ludi race. I haven't seen her face in months, but I messaged her, hey, can you guys do a water stop Saturday morning? Of course, sent pictures, cleaned it up, brought everything back to my house. When I was getting my brain surgery done, we had the ceilings and we had to, you know, do the wainscot and all the things we had to do in that bedroom. Ember and Peter, her husband, were at my house every day, helping us with the floors, helping us paint the wainscot, helping us put like, I can't even wrap my head around the fact that she would be that dedicated. And, you know, we have busy lives. She has three children. When either one of us needs something, the other one is right there. And I'm just incredibly lucky in this way. Another person that I am incredibly close with and through social media we maintain it is Mariah Momo. Mariah Brown was a shot putter for me several seasons, indoor and outdoor track. And boy, was track and field an avenue for her to process frustration and anger in her life and how she perceived things. She is, in my mind, a powerful, beautiful person, but she doesn't see herself that way. She's better now, aren't you, Momo? Honest about her insecurities. But she, she is somebody that took what was difficult and made things good. And she married a wonderful man. She has three beautiful boys, really spread out in age, which I kind of I kind of like. You know, she didn't bang a bunch of babies all at once. They're all spread out. It's, it's interesting. Some people just have their babies more close together, but she does wonderful things. She has an online business. I see her on Facebook sometimes marketing jewelry and beauty products and things. She's another one. She'll reach out. If she sees I'm struggling, she'll reach out. And these are all people that were right there, you know, when Molly died. And really, you know, when I lost my job, a lot of these runners maintained support and were kind to me. Somebody that I was also very, very close with was Allie, Allie Connolly. She wasn't too happy to move to Concord. She had really established herself in her former town. And her first year here was very hard on her emotionally. And she had a lot of anger about it. I spent hours with her. She'd come over. I'd drive, we'd go, go for drives. She babysat. I remember coming home and Molly and Gracie were not having, Molly was having a blast. Gracie was all perfectly. They just didn't click. <laughs> Gracie just wanted to be left alone. And Molly wanted makeup. Poor Allie, she came back. 
<laughs> feeling like a failure. I'm like, no, no, you're fine. It's okay. We had a wonderful relationship. I remember when I lost my job and how unfortunately, intricately in a negative way, her dad was involved in that. I had to sort of bid her farewell. Look, Allie, I love you, but you have to stick with your family, you know, family first, I guess, which considering my last podcast about, you know, we, we sometimes ally ourselves with families when maybe the right thing to do is to stand ground in what you believe, even if you're separate from your family, or even if that's different than what your family thinks. And so I miss Allie because, you know, she, she has a lot to offer. She coaches at Concord High School now. She's the cross country coach there now. She does a wonderful job and the girls love her. So that's what's important. But we have no relationship at all. And that's heart-wrenching because she was, she was an early on. You know, when I met Allie, I was just, I just found out that year I was pregnant with Molly, you know, so that was when I first met her and carted her down to cross-country camp. And then she went to all four years to Princeton camp. So these are people that came up, you know, I have this big list here. The other thing that I really noticed at this time is when I was running and then, and then actually jumping into a marriage with Eric, I lost contact with all my high school friends. And when we get together now, for example, I went out for drinks with Kathleen Sullivan and Deb Stanley, and they had all these trips. Remember when we went to Italy and did this? Remember we went, and I missed out on all of that. These were my best friends. This was my social group. And they all traveled and did these things together. And I was just oblivious because I wasn't involved in their lives. And there wasn't social media to keep you together if you weren't living near one another or had established friendships. And so it was after I was divorced from Eric and in that sort of phase of my life in the late 90s when... I reconnected with Bridget and Karen and Deb, and they were all sort of newly married and their children were little. And we would go out and have, you know, go out for drinks and things. And so when I had Gracie and Molly, I was just a bit behind the rest of them. So their kids are all just finishing college now or out of college a couple of years and married. Whereas, you know, Gracie would be entering her senior year and Molly would be entering her sophomore year if things had gone in that plan. But this was a wonderful thing. And this started early on as well, this reconnection with people that I knew growing up, high school friends. And so we started having these dinners together. And I have to say, those friendships, I just spoke on the phone with Deb Stanley today. Deb recently lost her dad. And who do we reach out to? We reach out to one another. So these are some of the people that are significant in my life. And I'm tying these people into the vein of family. I was on Facebook this morning, five in the morning scrolling. And a woman, a friend of mine, Tammy, was lamenting a bit about family and how we have family. We choose family. Could we give our family away? I'm the black sheep of my family. I don't fit in. And family can just be so darn tricky. I do know when I get together with my group of friends or anyone and we talk about family, there's always this line you walk between honoring your family, family first, family first, and then really standing true to yourself, even if standing true to yourself separates you a bit from your family. It's just such a tricky thing. And, you know, religion teaches us to honor our parents and even just just kind and, you know, having an attitude of gratitude. If you weren't for your parents, you wouldn't exist. Having said that, <laughs> if it weren't for my parents and certain family members, I wouldn't be mental in the head either. So, you know, I often find that really pondering friendships and developing relationships with people that you aren't related to is like building a family for yourself. So this woman, Tammy, who I have never met, Tammy Palmier, I'm talking about you. I've never met Tammy face-to-face, -face, but I look at her comments on child loss. I look at her kindness and support of others. I look at her daily vigil to do the Lord's prayer. She'll start it and well, everyone adds a comment to complete the prayer. She takes what works for her and uses it to help other people. And she creates family for herself. So if she's having a hard time and she puts it out there, all of us respond to try to ease her mind. I have this huge family. Now this is now family. I didn't even have Molly when I first moved back here. But looking at the people that set the tone for me, but I'm going to finish up with one strong person. It's actually good I'm finishing with her because I'm getting together with her soon. 
in my early years back, I really learned how to develop family. So the final person I'm going to talk about in my life at that time is Mooney, <laughs> Aaron Moon. So it took me a lot of years of coaching before I had a really good team. I started to get good teams. And we had the first year that we could actually make it through to New England. And I had Aaron and her best friend, Anna. And Anna, Anna and Aaron both live nearby. They live in the same town near the ocean. And, and they are as involved in running as you could be. And neither of them in high school came to running as their first sport. Anna was a soccer player, as was Aaron. Cross country and running all the time. I remember so clearly we were circled up and we were talking about New England. So I was picking who would go to New England. And I mentioned Anna's name and she went, ugh. And I started to cry. I got so upset. And I just was so frustrated because I was, I love running. It's my passion. And to see somebody not want to go when there are five or six other people in the room that would die to go, they would love to be good enough to go. It's not that she didn't want to go, but it was overwhelming to her. It was her first year in cross country and she joins a team and suddenly she's good enough to be in the top seven and have to continue the season. Erin and Anna provided so much fun in everything that we did. Games of Padiddle on the bus. Oh my gosh, Erin's family lived right near the high school and there was a swimming pool in their backyard. The number of times the track and cross country team flooded her house with wet pool water feet. The wonderful times that her parents put on parties and dinners for the teams over and over and over again, all the time for all the sports. I believe Erin was a Nordic skier. Correct me if I'm wrong when we see each other, Erin. But she did the same thing for those kids. I look at the social media of those girls and they are so committed to their families. And both of those girls are unbelievably committed to running. And it makes me laugh. Anna recently completed a half marathon and she's this big runner. And I'm like, okay, didn't you used to hate it? I will say both of them went on to run for college. Erin ran for URI and Anna ran for Brandeis. And both of them had wonderful, wonderful college running careers. So it's not that they weren't runners. And these are people, if I picked up the phone to call, that's I'm holding my hand like I'm going to talk on it. If I picked up my phone to message, Instagram message, Facebook message, text, Snapchat, whatever, TikTok, either of these girls, now young women, older women actually with families and children of their own, I know in a matter of minutes, I would hear back. Erin and I have been planning to get together for a long time now, so that has to happen. So I look at this list of names and I'm just going to read it. So it's Chaz, Meg, Jim, Kristen, Rachel, Erin, Ember, Anna, Polly, Rachel Yu, Chrissy, Allie, Kathy Highland, Meredith, Donna, Momo, Sarah, Sarah, who painted our pie booth, Sarah, very artistic Sarah that does CrossFit now. And then I look at Jack Frazier, who I grew up with. And then I look at KD and Bridgie and Deb, and then Selena and Elaine and Winnie, this group of high school friends that have come together all the time. And I've lived for a while with a woman named Cheryl. And Cheryl and I were both pregnant at the same time when I was pregnant with baby Gordy. And I remember when I knew that I had lost him, she cried and cried on the phone. I called her up to give her the news and she cried. She just broke down and cried. And she was just thrilled when I had Gracie and Molly. She's been super supportive. And I actually brought Jack-Jack over for a visit. Her daughter, Janita, just graduated from high school. And so I went by because Paul was there, her brother. So these are the people. These are the people that taught me early on when I came back from Boston and needed to recreate a life for myself, who taught me what family was. And of all the people on this list, I think if I called on any of them, they would be there to help me. Now, I have to say, I know there are others. I know I have probably left out many people. And if I have, please feel free to call me out on it because I will talk about you the next time. And I really do love to hear from people that I haven't heard from in a long time. So family, soul house, activities, do what you love, what makes you happy, attitude of gratitude, reach out, 
we do all of these things as human beings. We are not meant to be islands. We are not. I am a rock. I am an island is a great song. However, human nature is not solitary. Do we need time alone? Yes, we do. But we also need to make connections. And I think it's important that we are able to make connections with people. We do not need to be with people who fulfill our needs. We need to fulfill our own needs. We need to be with people that create an environment in which we as individuals can flourish and grow and do what we need to do. We don't need to be with people that make us dependent upon them. I will analyze when I talk about the chaos years, how much I've looked for people to, to make me feel better and to assuage my insecurities. <laughs> this is a process, I will tell you. As we approach day seven of over 90 degree heat in Concord on, here on July 24th, I want you all to cool off if you're hot or enjoy the heat like I do. Think about your friendships. Who are you friends with? Who do you remember from your childhood? Who have you met now? Who did you meet? And they came back around years later and did wonderful things. I just love to hear all about that. So as always, do something good for yourself. Do something good for someone else. It doesn't have to be a big thing. And as always, have a good day, everybody. Hey, thanks for listening and for supporting A Thousand Tiny Steps. I hope you enjoyed the episode and will continue to listen. Feel free to leave a review and share my stories with your friends. Also, please reach out if you have stories to share. I love hearing from and connecting with my listeners. If you would like to know what I'll be talking about down the road, you can find me on Instagram at barb underscore 444, on Facebook as Barb Higgins, and at my website, www.1000tinysteps.com.